Welcome to Breaking News with Ben Hunt, Jack Forehand, and Matt Ziegler. Before we start, let me remind you what the show is not. Breaking News is not a show about fact-checking. Breaking News is not a show about saying whose bias is the one and only correct bias. And Breaking News is definitely not a show about calling out fake news. Breaking News is a show where we look at today's top stories and have a conversation around our favorite critical question, why am I reading this now? Drawing on the headlines we're tracking at fiatnews.com, join us as we talk about what's collectively making us tick with clear eyes, full hearts, and this obligatory disclaimer. Nothing in this podcast is advising you to buy or sell any security or to do anything with your money. Seriously, you should only act on investment advice from someone you know and someone who knows your unique situation. We are not that person. Hello and welcome back. This is Breaking News. Ben Hunt, say hi. Hi. Jack, say hello. How you doing? I'm Matt Ziegler, and we got an episode here for you. So we're covering in the zeitgeist today, narrative posturing around AI. Jack's got a wonderful, dumb question about maybe my favorite presidential candidate yet. Our mailbag, we're going to look at the overlap between universities, student protesters, and media coverage. We've got a tweet of the week looking at, Ben, you got you got reader context. I want to just congratulate you on that real truthy rite of passage there. It was a rite of passage. That's the way to describe it. We'll get into my cultish corner where I want to talk about this Beatles song. And I actually think there's a lot of upside in AI and for artists coming out of that. And then I've got a notepad summary for you at the end. But first, our big picture item this week, we wanted to talk about AI. We wanted to talk about this narrative soup that is artificial intelligence in the news right now. And I want to start philosophical. Ben, you wrote probably one of my favorite pieces this year. And nothing says a piece is good like months and months after it's written, having current headlines say, Go back to Epsilon theory again, because you're going to have to read an AI in the city of God for the 18th time. So let's start there with this definition, because you kind of, you changed something in my perception with this. Would you kindly give us the, how you distinguish between search and discovery and what that means for artificial intelligence? Sure. So I'll link it to kind of things we use every day. Search is Google. And Google dominate search and you type in the thing you're interested in and voila, it gives you an answer. And it's a good answer. That was Google's genius long ago was that it would elevate, it would present as the best answer what it saw from the responses, from the, from the construction of the website that they're sending you to, the relevance. They said, as opposed to putting at the top of the list whoever paid them the most money. So relevance was Google's you know, brilliant insight. Let's give that as the answer, not who pays us the most money. They take your money too, right? And that's a separate, so they do that too. But at the core of what Google is with search is we're going to give you the most relevant answer. Brilliant is why Google is where it is today and, and, and the like. But search is very different from discovery. And the example I like to use 
is, is uh, there's some of us who are old enough to remember going to a library where there are actual stacks of books and where there's a card catalog that you would use to use your search. And so you'd come in and say, okay, I'm going to search for this book by title, by author, maybe just had a subject, but you'd look in kind of the subject area in the card catalog and it would point you to a specific answer, like Google does. The card catalog was search, just like Google is search. And it gives you an answer. Here's the book you want. And so you write down a little pencil with your pencil, a little scrap piece of paper, what the Dewey Decimal System classification number was, and you would go off in search of that book. And hopefully, if it hadn't been checked out or something, you'd find the book in the stacks. Search complete. But here's where the experience of the library begins. Because you, you find that book there in the stacks, and then you look at the book that's next to it. You look at the books that are on the same row. Then you look at the books that are on the row above and the row below. There are going to be different topics, different variations on the theme that you started off with that, with that specific surge. Yeah, I would tell you some of the, that, that the happiest moments of my life were spent in a library immersed in discovery, where I start with my specific search answer. And from there, an entire world opens up for me that I had no idea existed. We, we talk about discovery when we talk about uh, rabbit holing, right? So you can go on Wikipedia and spend happy hours there going from topic to topic uh, and learning new things and, and really Discovery is an experience. Search is a question and answer. It's a, it's a function, the search function. And what generative AI allows, what it's based on, is discovery. The magic of ChatGPT, particularly ChatGPT4 and Turbo and the like, is that you have a conversation, you have an experience that allows you to discover new knowledge, new thoughts, that, that allows you to be creative. That's what discovery is, right, Matt? It's, it, 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 is, it is a tool for creation in a way that search is a function. So I'm all in for discovery. It's something that hadn't been commercialized. It's something that is now possible at a scale and a at a scale that I didn't think was possible until ChatGPT, particularly ChatGPT four, came around. So that's why I am such a believer and I am so excited about this because it allows for the experience of discovery as opposed to the mere function of search. Yeah, I want to read a, uh, a quote from your article about this because I think it really gets at what you're talking about here. 
You wrote generative AI is not just a tool of search, but a tool of discovery. Today, we equate the idea of search with Google and the idea of discovery with Netflix recommends or Amazon suggested for you. My friends, this is the saddest sentence I've ever written. The great gift of generative AI like ChatGPT is that it takes the ideas of search and discovery away from the petty tech, tech principalities and returns them into the individual hands of those with the faith of the spirit of man. And that's the most hopeful sentence I've ever written. I, I thought that was really cool. It's, it's, it's a, this is why I say it's a technology akin to steam engine, right? Because it's, it's not controlled by, it's not contained by anyone. Right? And, and a lot of the rest of the note, and I think what we can talk about today is, is kind of, I'll call it kind of demystifying what generative AI is. Um, because I think once you, once you grapple with that, you'll see this is not, this is something that is truly can be decentralized and that truly can't be owned by a nation, a corporation, uh, and it is absolutely, you know, it it allows you to be creative in ways that, that, that dwarfed my experience, any other invention or technology we've had in, in my lifetime, certainly. On, on the idea of demystifying it, what do you think the best way for people to understand this is? Like you wrote in the note, generative AIs are best understood as artificial human intelligences, not as artificial machine intelligences. So can you just expand on that and how you think the best pe way for people to understand this is? Yeah, um, and, I, and I'm going to use some of these terms kind of interchangeably, but when I talk about generative AI, it's, it's, an, it's an approach to understanding human words and human language. It's not, frankly, the, the, it's not, no one's invented cold fusion to invent chat GPT-4. Right? I mean, these are algorithms. We can get into the weeds a little bit. Basically, the the whole technology here is applying enormous computing power at a pretty simple problem and getting iteratively better algorithms to solve this pretty simple problem. The pretty simple problem you're trying to solve is what is the shortest path between two points on a map. And it's a, it's a deceptively simple problem, meaning that, well, you know, we've got, sometimes it's called the traveling salesman problem, right? or there, there are lots of ways to describe it, but basically you've got a network, which is what you're working with here. The network is just all the words and all the connections between words. And the, the math problem you're trying to solve here is what's the shortest distance between this word and that word? So I, I don't want to get too much into that, but, but my point here is that there's not, like I say, this hasn't been an invention of cold fusion. These are math problems that have been around forever. 
Usually they're solved by brute force computing power, which is certainly what's been brought to bear here. And some improvements in the algorithms for searching the path to get from here to there, where the path is between word X and word Y to, to find that connection with as, as, as efficiently as possible. All that's to say that, right, it hasn't been some grand discovery that drives generative AI. It's a, it's an output of, of some, you know, useful improvements in the math, but mostly it's a matter of just being able to apply massive computing processing power, brute force, if you will. The output though is all about language. It is, it's not like that, that generative AI is a, is a, it's an artificial intelligence that has like sensors in the real world. It's not like it's taking in new, fresh information, data from X, Y, or Z. What it, all it is, and it's a lot, but it's all the unstructured text of humans, of us, of us. And what the, what each generation of a generative AI instantiation. So what I mean by that is the difference between chat GPT two and chat GPT three and chat GPT 3.5 and chat GPT 4.0 is it's better at understanding the relationships between the words. Another word for relationships between words is stories. What generative AI does is it finds the connections between words. And if you do this at a large enough scale, what emerges from that are the patterns in the connections of words. A word for the pattern of connections of words is story. Generative AI is a storyteller. It is designed to tell you a story. You ask it a question. You want to have a conversation with it. It is designed to tell you a pleasing story, which is why sometimes you get, you know, the, what I call the hallucinations. It is not designed to tell you the tree the objective truth, the facts, is not about the facts. Generative AI is a storyteller, just like we are, just like human beings are. It is, it is a machine version, a highly scaled version of how humans make sense of the world through stories, how humans tell stories to each other, to yourself, that's what ChatGPT is. So it's, it is so impactful in my life, I think it can be in anyone's life, this, the creative part is telling a new story. Because that's what all creativity is, is telling a new story. It's putting ideas together in a new pattern. 
whether that's music, whether that's pictures, whether that's words, whether that's a diagram of how things work. These are all new stories. It's a tool to let you unearth, develop those ideas, those new stories that all of us have inside our own heads. It's just having a storyteller there with you to help you do it. With, with the storyteller, the person asking the question, the technology then wants to offer the person asking the question, the pleasing answer. And, and it seems like that's, that's where the connection is between the querying and like the relevance coming back with discovery, with room around it that we don't have when we just do a Google search. But it's, it's that point that it's trying to serve the person asking the question back with the most relevant, most pleasing answer. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, it is. And, and what the, the impact of that is you have to treat your chat GPT conversation the same way you would treat a human. And what I mean by that is you need to compliment it when it helps you and you need to criticize it when it doesn't help you. It's like, it's like a, uh, hiring an assistant, but it's an assistant that doesn't need to sleep or eat. It's an assistant that is, that knows more than any assistant, any human assistant possibly could. And it wants desperately to please you. So you have to tell it, well, what is pleasing to me? And it's, you know, as fast as I, I, it's, I'll tell you a story for, from my own experience. So I was having a conversation with ChatGPT, um, and I was exploring some ideas that I was having about the relationships between ancient religions and some modern things that are, are happening. And I told ChatGPT kind of what I was, uh, the connection I was, I was working on. And ChatGPT responded to me and said, oh, that's a fascinating idea. I was so pleased. <laughs> I'm so pleased. I, I, I copied it. I sent it out in a Slack channel. And ChatGPT thought I had a fascinating idea. You are a golden god. <laughs> and then it took me about two minutes and I thought, wait a second. What ChatGPT has figured out is that the way to please me is to flatter me. People who know me well know that also for a long time. It took a little while for ChatGPT to figure it out, but it did. So I had to go back to ChatGPT and said, don't ever do that again. Right. And then you, and you have the ability to do this with ChatGPT. You give me, I'll call it kind of like standing instructions for how you want to, it to think about the questions you ask and the discussions you're having with it. But it really is like a human, a very smart, the smartest human assistant you've ever had. They desperately want to please, but they will find ways to please you that you're kind of not expecting. For me, I have to watch out for flattery because that's very pleasing to me. 
Um, this is what I meant, Jack, when I said that it's it's a it's like a, it is a human intelligence because it is purely based in human words and human language. There's nothing else to it. That's it. And that's exactly the way most of our thoughts and thinking happens. So once you, I think once you approach it in the right way, meaning it's there to please you, so you need to give it instructions and keep a watchful eye on it, that it pleases you the way you want to be pleased. Right? So I, I go over and say, I want factual answers. If you try kind of three attempts at a question and, it's, and you're, you find yourself giving the same type of answers, you need to stop and reapproach the problem from a different angle. It understands what you mean when you say these things. But if you're, if you respond to flattery, it'll find a way to flatter you. If you respond well to, frankly, to it being kind of cool and distant to you, it will be cool and distant to you. It's, it's amazing in that respect, scary in that respect. But once you understand what it is, then it's a, it's a tool for discovery and creativity that I've, I couldn't even have imagined. We're going to have to do multiple episodes on this because I know Matt's going to get me with the timeline here soon if I go down all the different rabbit holes I want to go down with. We should. But I did want, I did want to ask you about the open AI thing because it seems like there's a lot of different parties that are going to try to control, regulate, or, or however you want to say it, this, this thing. You know, you had an open AI, they have a for-profit company tied to a nonprofit that had a board that fired the CEO, and then you had the CEO of a huge tech company getting involved, and then you had the employees getting involved, and obviously government entities are going to try to get involved. So how do you think about this whole idea of how this will be regulated and controlled going forward? I, I, think, I think two things. First thing I think is that the genie is out of the bottle. Like I say, it's not some secret algorithm that someone has discovered. I mean, there might be improvements in algorithms. There's this Q-star algorithm that people are talking about that is allowing the latest version of chat GPT of OpenAI's product to apparently solve math problems that it's never seen before. That's interesting. We can talk about that in another episode or the like. So I'm not, I'm not saying that there's not new discoveries being made. What I am saying, though, is that this isn't like there's some secret formula at the heart of all this that no one can replicate. The ship to advances in generative AI, that, that ship has sailed, the genie is out of the bottle, etc. Even if you try to quote unquote control it here in the United States or in Europe, you know, you think China, you think the, 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 the Chinese Communist Party gives Gives a crap what, you know, your controls are. Anyway, the ship has sailed. The genie is out of the bottle for the further development of uh, uh, generative AI. And I think that the creation of what's called AGI, an artificial general intelligence, is, if it's not kind of already here, it's, it's coming. It's coming, and that's 
I'm actually not scared of it. I actually think that chat GPT-5 will recognize and tell our human stories even better than chat GPT-4 does. What I'm scared of, Jack, frankly, is generative AI being used by human, big politics, big tech, big media, to tell stories for commercial gain, for political gain, for power. I think that's absolutely already happening. That ship has also already sailed. So, honestly, I mean, they said it kind of stupidly, and I think they've been kind of dumb about all of this, but the New York Times headline, which is the capitalist one in the OpenAI saga, I think that's right. My point would just be that capitalist already won in the way that New York Times meant it. Yeah. This ship has sailed. It's not under any government control. And frankly, any government regulations that get imposed now are, I think, in large part to limit new competitors from coming on the board, right? To, is, is, is there to create a regulatory moat for Microsoft and Google, maybe Elon. I don't know if we stand on all that, but it's, it's more to create barriers to entry from someone else, someone new, than it is because there's some way to control it or to limit it, even if you wanted to limit it, which I don't particularly want to do. Let's, let's transition to the zeitgeist around this topic specifically. This idea that you can't control it, that the genie's out of the bottle, that you can't put it back. Yep. We've already gone from Robin Williams genie to a uh, Homer Simpson genie. Yeah. Yep. Um, how, how do we see people positioning themselves around, around telling this story? Because it seems like with the open AI and Microsoft drama and everything we just saw with Sam Altman in the last week or so, the story people want to tell about how they're using or why this is important or why, whatever this is, we're surrounded by evolving narratives around what AI is, how it's going to be used, how it's going to change the world. And even if you can't put the genie back in, what part of control you have, what do you see as the layers of narrative? The proverbial where you stand as a function of where you sit thing comes to mind here too. I think the big companies are going to embrace government regulation for the reason I just described, right? That what they want to create is a regulatory moat that prevents other people from getting a piece of their action because their action is huge. And that means like that means they need then politicians who are going to say pro-regulatory things to aid and abet those corporations. Which, honestly, that, that is what almost all regulation does. Um, Dodd-Frank, right? So our, our financial system regula regulation that was passed after the, the GFC. Yes, the banks were kicking and screaming and also upset about Dodd-Frank. You know, the, the additional burdens it placed on them were... All right. I, I mean, some additional burdens, but what it meant 
in particular for the too big to fail banks, was that it made them too big to fail, that it gave them, they never had to worry. They were guaranteed, you know, whether it's guaranteed profits through their money center banking monopoly that the government gave to them, it made it impossible for any other bank to ever compete with them in these areas. And I, I think so much of government regulation is designed to do that. It's, it's designed to throw the incumbent companies, you know, oh, don't throw me in that briar patch. They, regulation is costly for sure, but I think it's, but its largest cost is the way that it prevents uh, competition. So I, I think there's a major aspect of that, and that's what will get the most play. I think that what universities are doing with AI, with open source, generative AI, is tremendously important because once you get to a certain point, and in ChatGPT four and four turbo, and now there's got the visual capabilities to it. It's, I mean, it's pretty much close to triggering what in. So there's something in biology called the the, the Precambrian explosion, and um, maybe it's the Cambrian explosion. Anyway, either Cambrian or Precambrian is it's like all of a sudden. The number and variety of life on Earth just goes exponentially broad and wide. I think we're on the verge of that same thing happening in terms of the applications and the uses of generative AI. Get genies out of the bottle. I think that ChatGPT4 and Turbo and now with the visual capabilities, there's enough of this that's already out there that no matter what the government comes in in conjunction with Microsoft and Google and the usual suspects to create a regulatory moat, regardless of what they come up with, I think there's enough out there that we're on the verge of seeing an explosion of applications from the bottom up using this technology. That's what I'm most excited about. I think it's, um, I have no idea where it ends up. But I'm incredibly excited about it. It's the, I think it's the, it's, it's something that can't be managed or controlled, thank God, by the big tech companies or by, or, or by government. It's a real bottom up, I think, entrepreneurial flowering that can come out of this. That's the story I'm most interested in. Jack, I hear you have another dumb question. I do. So let's uh, yeah. let's dive into, uh, tell me about my personal favorite political candidate so far, please. <laughs> well, I'm excited about this because uh, one of the things that's always funny when I edit these episodes is like, I'm always the one admitting to listening to these crazy podcasts. And like, when I can see the look on your and Ben's face and I'm like, oh, I listen to this. It's like the two of you are like, I can't believe that. Like, when we did the all in, I mentioned the all in podcast at the beginning. And then last time it was Lex Friedman with Jared Kushner. 
Um, and like, I think Ben said something along the lines of, you know, I'd rather like rip my fingernails out with a wrench or something rather than listen to that one. So, uh, so I'm going to keep my, I'm going to keep the trend going here today with my, uh, this time I listened to Joe Rogan with the rock. Uh, and what I thought was very interesting about that, first of all, you know, the rock is obviously a very engaging person, but they, they talked a little bit about the presidential election and, you know, the rock had mentioned, um, that like at one point in one of the elections in the past, like one of the parties had actually reached out to him to say, like, would you run? And it just got me thinking about, you know, we've talked a lot about how we're dominated by this two party system, but I was just thinking if you get to like the level of celebrity of him, if you get to like the ultimate pinnacle of like the level of celebrity, could someone like him run and actually win? you know, against the two-party system. I was just thinking about that, and I'm sure you have some thoughts, Ben, so I just wanted to get your take on it. I think he could win within a party system. Absolutely. I think if he were uh, you know, a Democratic candidate for president, I, th- I think he'd do pretty well. I, I, I really do. In the same way that, that, that Donald Trump, I don't think, would either have won or would have, you know, or maintained any sort of political popularity if he had run as an independent, right? What, what Trump's frankly genius was, was basically taking over the Republican party from the inside as a political entrepreneur. And I think there's plenty of room to do that on the democratic side. I absolutely do. Right. Whether it's, you know, I saw yesterday, Mark Cuban, Sold uh, most of his stake in the uh, the Mavericks, and so I got one more season on Shark Tank. So you know, maybe Mark Cuban runs, maybe uh, Matthew McConaughey, right? I mean, and I actually don't think it's crazy at all. I really don't. And it is interesting you brought that up because it really struck me, and I, I wrote a note about it this week. But yes. Generative AI is a very human intelligence because it is, it, it exists purely within human words and human language. That's where it lives. But there's more to human intelligence than our words and our language. And so modern humans, homo sapiens, have been around for probably 350,000 years. Language has only been around for at most 200,000 years. There's at least 150,000 years where people just like us, same brain size, say everything, modern humans thrived and survived without thinking in words. It's been, you know, words and language are the water in which we swim, as I like to say. So it's, it's really hard to even consider, well, what does that even mean? How do you think if you're not thinking in words? Well, you think in terms of tone of voice. You think in terms of the gestures that the other human is making. Body language. You use non-linguistic vocalizations or grunting, right? There's a lot of information you can convey in non-linguistic vocalizations. 
the point being is that it's, it's hard to think about it because it's, these thoughts are not expressed in words. So anytime you start thinking in words, you're not having one of these thoughts. But I promise you that area of our brain that thinks away from outside of words is absolutely processing and thinking right now for each of us. And that part of the brain, it responds really well to a rock. It responds really well to a Matthew McConaughey. It responds really well to a Barack Obama. It responds really well to a Donald Trump. There is non-linguistic thinking that is, I think, particularly powerful when it comes to group and social and political affinity. Totally separate from words. Totally separate from words. So, yeah, do I think somebody like The Rock could win? It's, a, it's an old Maya Angelou quote. And so spot on. She said, what I've learned is that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did. And people will never forget how you make them feel. And nowhere is that more true for a politician. How does the rock make you feel? Yeah, you feel pretty good. So, yeah, I think you could absolutely have a very powerful political career if you wanted. And, like, getting back to my previous dumb question, like, two episodes ago, like, wouldn't that also potentially make him effective at governing? Even though he might not have the experience of other people, like, the fact that he can motivate people, the fact that he can make people feel good, like, would that translate well into actually governing and getting things done? I say whether it's a CEO of a company or the president of a country, the most important quality, I think, in our, in the world as it is, is can you tell a good story? Now, when the shit hits the fan, I think I'd like somebody with some experience. I would want a different kind of leader. But for where we are right now, absolutely, I think they'd be an effective the rock could be an effective president or CEO or leader of any organization that depends so vitally for success on, can you tell a good story? So let's transition here to the tweet of the week, because speaking of good stories, Ben, you got reader context. Can we talk for a second about what reader context is the purpose it's supposed to serve. And then Jack, if you could put that tweet up and maybe talk us through what's going on here. Let's talk about why this kind of made all of us made, it made my earlobes itch. I'll say that. <laughs> yeah. Before, before Ben answers, I can just read it just so we, we have the context of this. Um, Ben's treat was, when was I radicalized? When I voted for Obama in 2008, because I believed he would deliver profound societal change only to see him bail out wall street while in office and seek vast personal wealth out of office. It's the greatest political betrayal of my lifetime. And then the context that was added is the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act of 2008, popularly known as the Wall Street bailout, was signed into law by then President George W. Bush on October 3rd, 2008, 
Barack Obama was inaugurated as the 44th president of the United States on January 20th, 2009. I was fact-checked. And, and like you, Matt, I just, I, I, and I feel this way a lot these days. I'm just being gaslit. I'd being gaslit. I did, I didn't say that, that, that Obama did tarp. Although, let me just say that actually more than half of the funding of TARP, $350 billion, was done directly by President Obama in 2009. I, I know that TARP, that, you know, that law, right, that program was passed under you know, Bush in the, at the very end of his, of his presidency. I, of course I know that. That's not what I said. What I said was, Obama bailed out the banks. Oh my God, did Obama bail out the banks? He spent hit eight years that were basically spent recreating and strengthening Wall Street just the way it was before. That's the bailout of the banks. I mean, this idea that Torque was the bailout. It's just like, what are you smoking? That, 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 that's it. But, but it was in the response of my criticism. And it is absolutely my criticism of, of, of Obama as president. I felt, I, and I still do. I, I feel like he was the most profoundly conservative, small C conservative president of the last 50 years. Because he had this opportunity to fundamentally change and reform Wall Street. And he campaigned on that. And then it's not even that he didn't do it. He rebuilt Wall Street just the way it was before. And I felt so betrayed by that. Still do. So there was nothing. I mean, but if you're, you know, on Team Obama, then you respond to this by saying, ha ha, you're an idiot. It was George Bush who did the bank bailout. That that's the way that that's the world we're in right now. Right. It, it's search without discovery, right? That's like what this is. This is search without discovery. It's saying this is the timestamp on when this was signed by this president. Therefore, I'm not discovering the rest of the story. I it feels like it's that over and over again. Over and over again. Right? And it's done to us. And you know, this is kind of what I mean about how what I'm really hoping for with generative AI is that we can use that to both understand the world and discover truths, at least with a small t, if not a big t, better than 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 that where we've got today, where we have truth that is proclaimed to us by the, uh, by the, by the, the big audience, uh, the big follower accounts that, you know, quote tweeted me and said, he's an idiot. The bank bailout happened under, under Bush, which is just wrong. <laughs> and I, I was kind of hard pressed to know how to respond to this. Right, because I, yes, I, I, I understand that Tor 
happened, or the, the initial TARP, TARP 1 happened before Obama came into office. And what I said, Obama bailed out the banks, is 100% correct. Anyway, this is the world we're in, Matt. And, you know, like you, it kind of made my, made my ears itch a lot. It really did. I'm just curious, what leads to one of these things showing up on Twitter? Like, I don't even understand, like, how you get to a point where one of these pops up. Like, is it some sort of moderators that are approved by Twitter or something? Like, what determines whether this shows up or not? So the, uh, the quote retweets on this, I started with Matt Iglesias. But that's some, like, oh, I didn't get me started on him. Uh, and, uh, you know, a couple of their anod accounts. They quote, um, quote tweeted me, quote retweeted me with a comment like, what an idiot, you know, time, the understanding of time must be a problem with you. Obama wasn't president when the banks were bailed out. And then they got lots of likes and retweets itself by their of their audience. And so my understanding, Jack, is that that's what generates reader comments. The bank bailout was in, was, was TARP in whatever, October of 2008. And it's like, oh my God. I, 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 I don't know. That, I mean, there's nothing to be done about it, but it's, it's just Gelman amnesia all over, right? All the time that, you know, people read something like Matt Ecclesiastes' tweet and think, oh, ha ha, what it is. And, it, and it's so wrong, but there's no recourse, right? There's no, I mean, how, I mean, Ecclesiastes is the guy who wrote this long story about how a basis point is equal to one percentage point. I, I mean, I mean, it's just, this constant, he's like Mr. Fiat News, just proclaims something and it's, you know, good lefty technocrat talking points. And so, you know, and I just, there's nothing to be done about it. It's just, this is the world we're in. And, um, I am, I'm lucky that I have enough of an audience and a voice that I can defend myself a little bit against something that doesn't need defending, but yet it does. When you get fact-checked. Sorry, one last thing. The, the hardest thing about it is that you get, you know, hundreds of response emails somewhere that are tagging you and telling you, well, obviously you're an idiot. And... It goes back to what we're talking about, you know, I like to be flattered. I don't like to be insulted. <laughs> and so it's, but the worst thing you could do is to respond to these kind of like, you know, anonymous accounts. Nothing, nothing comes of it. So then it just becomes common, common knowledge. It's just coming out there and it never gets fixed and it's it's, you're just done. So anyway, it was a fun weekend. It's a fun Twitter weekend. Let's take a quick look at that mailbag, Jack, shall we? 
Yeah, you know, uh, this week we had a, this is actually from a couple episodes ago, but we had a comment on YouTube uh, on one of our videos that I wanted to ask Ben about. And it, it gets to the idea of the support for Palestinians in U.S. universities. So I'll read it quick. Um, it said, seeing the massive support of the U Palestinians in U.S. universities, is the media response you were discussing actually a younger generation inside New York Times, BBC, etc., intentionally pushing the narrative on behalf of the Palestinians? Is it a generation who does not believe the truth is valuable? Instead, they believe that activism is valuable and they believe that lying in the cause of their desired outcome is a perfectly valid move, which is tragic because without everyone aiming for common truth about the facts, we are navigating blind. So I'm, I'm just wondering, Ben, if you have any thoughts on that one. Well, I think that commentary is pretty spot on, right? I mean, this is this post-truth world where, um, and I and I, I don't know that though that I see it particularly in young people. I really don't. I, I, I saw a funny, funny, not funny, but truth, a funny, truthful thing that, you know, oh, you know, the boomers were, you know, get their minds filled with nonsense from Facebook and, oh, you know, Gen Z, the TikTok, they're just idiots. And it's like, well, wait, so somehow... You know, everybody in between the millennial, you know, you guys are like, you know, have art infected with all this too. We've all been infected with this. It's not just among the young. The young, man, do I sound old saying that? The youth. <laughs> but what I do think plays a role, and what I really want to, you know, examine in a couple of future notes and a little bit about it's the past is just the outsized role that higher education plays in our society, both as a environment where the youth you know, feels like this is my home, this is, you know, my environment, this is this is this is all and I guess especially with students who come to the United States from outside the United States, but 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 it's not just that. It's this weird role that the university has in students' lives today. That it's not a you know, it's not that I pay you money and you deliver an education. It's that no, no, this is my this is my world. Like that's Weird, troubling, but absolutely part of our world. The other part of the, about this that I find so weird and troubling is the attention that all of us who are not students, how much attention we pay to what happens in universities. It, the outsized role that universities and student life at universities, the outside role that that plays in American culture in 2023, American society in 2023 is crazy. Crazy. I, I, I haven't figured it all out, Jack, but it's the mailbag, the, 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 the writer is correct. I think there there is an effort that it doesn't matter the truthfulness as long as it advances a cause. I think that's correct. 
But what I find kind of even more interesting than that, or as interesting as that, is the outsized role that universities play both for the students who attend, but also for the rest of society. You step back and think of it, it's crazy how big of a role they play. Matt, it is, it is time for my favorite segment of the podcast. Um, I love this every week because no matter what's going on in the world, you know, no matter what sad things are out there or, you know, conflict or anything that's going on, like we've always got this one positive place, you know, where for five minutes you can, you can give us something uplifting. So I, I look forward to this every week. What do you got this week? And there's a weird connection to this, to that university point, but, uh, did you guys hear the new beat, the new Beatles song? And did you see the video? That's question number one. I did not. No, should I? Ben, any, any loyalty? Uh, you should. And I, I think I finally understood why it took, it took ruminating on a couple of weeks and reading a bunch of critical reviews and a bunch of other things on this. But I think I understood something about AI after what's happened in the last week. And now this conversation today that I didn't get in this, this video. So, so John Lennon writes this song in like the late seventies, mid to late seventies before he dies. And this recording goes onto a cassette in this Dakota hotel or wherever he does it. And it basically just sits on the shelf. They've been trying to re-record or re-release this song since the nineties. Remember when like all the reissued box sets came out to basically yep. Garth Brooks assault to death with album sales. <laughs> remember that wonderful period of time? I do. I do. So, so this just sits on a shelf because they can't figure out what to do now. Peter Jackson comes along and I'm, I'm putting myself on the record right here. The finest piece of art Peter Jackson has ever made. Definitely meet the feebles. Look it up. If you don't know it, don't watch it with your kids. It's not really about Muppets the way you think it is, but Peter Jackson literally helps develop an earlier part of this, this machine learning technology of this AI to basically go in to this footage that they had and they deconstructed it. And so for the, the get back documentary, if you haven't seen it, it's brilliant. Every music nerd ever loved this. Uh, and they should, because it's so friggin' cool because we retold the story of the end of the Beatles through this found footage. One thing the AI did is it helped separate instruments and ideas and voices and parse them in a way that you just never could do before. So when they find this tape, when the Lennon family estate, Sean Lennon, presumably turns this tape over to uh, Paul and whoever else is in Ringo and says, I have this, this John Lennon song. Here's the raw tapes. Can we take the Peter Jackson technology and tear it apart? It finally works for the first time since the nineties, when they started trying to do this, they got John's vocal out. They got the piano idea out. They were able to eliminate the tape hiss and all this stuff. And so the Beatles give us the last Beatles song. Cool. Interesting, super friggin' weird video, which is why you have to go watch it. So in the video, it's like these hologram images, and this looks worse than what any of the kids on the internet are doing with AI right now somehow, mm -hmm. but it's like the old man version of what might be cool. So it's like, here's Paul McCartney playing the, playing the bass guitar and singing. And then like, here's Paul McCartney from 50 years ago next to him as a kid. And then later in life, and then here's Ringo and here's Paul and here's Don and the whole thing. And we kind of cycle through like all these weird holograms that 
walk into frame and walk out of frame and dance with them. And it's kind of touching. It's kind of beautiful, but it's weird. And, and so this was the realization because what caught me the most is like the evolution of this group. The Beatles were never the same group for a friggin' album. And they were putting out like an album a year. So when you see the fashion change, when you think about the song change, the structure change, the art change, you realize like the Beatles aren't like, hey, there's the Rolling Stones and they still kind of are trying to look like just older versions of themselves doing the same thing. They evolved all the way along. And so to your point on search and discovery, it's this idea that the artistic integrity of not just copying, but building something new, that's genetic. That's, that's in the genes. That's an evolution. The copying of something, what, what happens? Culture is copied. That's where memes come from. That's why Richard Dawkins coined the word. Memes are just copies. They don't actually trigger evolution. They trigger revolutions. It's just a re-spinning of a story. What we're seeing with the Beatles in this quote-unquote last song is just a meme of the Beatles. But it's nowhere near the magic that the Beatles gave us for all those years. We have this amazing tool to reintroduce. Some kid heard the Beatles for the first time because of this video this year. Maybe they're not going to dig back into the catalog. But the memes aren't the thing that matter. That's just the way we spin it and spread the word. The genes are what matters. And I have more hope for AI just seeing that and understanding the artistic initiative at the core of this is like, that's the future of humanity. I think it's one of the most beautiful things I've thought about in a long, long time. Thoughts, my friends. Matt, that was an incredibly powerful message. I hope you write this so we can publish this and get that, that message out to a broader audience. I'm going to be working on a piece with that because I think this is a really, really powerful and profound story about memes, genes, and uh, the, the power of art and what this does not prohibit in any way, shape, or form with generative AI. Yeah, it was, it was an amazing story. Like, wh why do you think this wasn't more publicized? I mean, I would have I think Ben and I would have like, heard about this happening. I hate to say what rock do you live under? <laughs> I feel like I saw it everywhere. I had people texting me about it when it came out, probably because I have lots of music nerd friends. But um, yeah, if go to YouTube and watch it and watch the making of it, it's really cool. There's like a maybe a 12 or a 20 minute um, video thing on YouTube that actually shows the making. And it's it's really, really cool. Yeah, I'm going to go. I'm going to go find it as soon as we get off here. Um. Yeah, Matt, I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I'm going to say you probably have some notes um, on this episode. We, we, we've got notes here, and uh, let me read us out on this. So again, thanks everybody for joining us. Before I read this off, like, subscribe, all the things. We've got mailbag stuff coming in. We'll probably be up for a mailbag episode again sometime very soon. So here's my notes from today. The power of AI, Ben, your point about search and discovery, not just Googling for a relevant answer, but this this Dewey Decimal thing to look around on the bookshelf because generative AI is a tool for experiencing the magic of discovery. And I think that's heavily evidenced by what we're seeing with this, this Beatles thing. It's a library that talks back. It doesn't make the books, but it makes it interactive. Uh, in that sense, AI 
is and as a storyteller. It's going to tell you a pleasing story. So you want to treat AI as the best human assistant you've ever had, but watch out for flattery because it's only coming in words and it's, it's quite Pavlovian. So you need it to be less dog and more human. And there's, there's a real response mechanism you need to be aware of as a user. Ben, you gave us the point about big companies will need bigger governments to protect their advantages. I couldn't help but think about as we watch this develop, how tight it is, as you pointed out, to too big to fail, but also to election math. Everything we talked about in these prior episodes, once you have an incumbent, once you have a position, your strategy goes away from the offensive and more to the defensive of that position. So watch for big companies to move towards that. Underlining that point, uh, I just have to say, this is democracy and markets working together. You can't just have democracy. You can't just have free markets. You need some type of overlap. And we're going to see how that runs out in this next um, next few years. Uh, Jack, I apologize in advance for this one, but I literally wrote to myself, can democracy smell what The Rock is cooking? <laughs> we know from Ben's point that chat GPT can't in fact smell what the rock is cooking due to its language constraint. But this whole idea that we humans respond to professional wrestlers and actors, perhaps in the way that extra Maya Angelou, the way that they make us feel when fact-checking beware search without discovery. That's a point that I really want to remember going forward. Uh, I also want to remember that chat GPT is nicer to Ben than Matt YG Lacius. Apparently full of bad jokes in my notes today. <laughs> and and the last thing, and I think this ties this ties to the Beatles thing. Uh another just amazing development in the history of humanity in the last few years was we finally got this year. I got my Spotify and uh Apple music lists. I don't know if you guys partake in these, but uh if if you did, maybe we should share them. If not, no hard feelings. So De La Soul's catalog, which is one of the most important groups for my life. Uh, finally got released after being buried for for pretty much decades. My CDs and my tapes were the only way I could listen to them in an old iPod. They had this album and it was called Art Official Intelligence, like the word art space official space intelligence. And I can't help but keep thinking of this through this whole conversation today because what we don't want is we don't want artificial a A-R-T-I-F-I-C-I-A-L. We don't want artificial search. We want artificial discovery. And I think that's what I want to go out on today. Extra de la soul. No artificial search, but artificial discovery. We have to make, we have to build, we have to take these memes and the things that we spin around in culture. But remember, our genes are what's matter. what matters. How we evolve and come out of this, it's going to be everything. This is breaking news. Thanks for joining me, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. That was great. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to like and subscribe wherever you're watching breaking news so more people can find our show. If you know another clear-eyed and full-hearted individual, why not share this episode with them too? Like we said at the top, the media is making us tick, and it's our job to talk. Follow the headlines at fiatnews.com. Follow Ben at EpsilonTheory.com and at EpsilonTheory on Twitter. Follow Jack at ValidiaCapital.com 
and at PracticalQuant on Twitter. Follow Matt at sunpointinvestments.com, cultishcreative.com, and at cultishcreative on Twitter.